0: My name is John Pauling, I'm the associate pastor here. We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 6. And while you guys are turning there, that's at the, kind of the beginning, towards the beginning of your Old Testament. But while you're turning there, I thought I would just ask a quick question. Um, How many of you guys have seen the Ken Burns Civil War documentary? We got like four or five, Jeff Payne, of course, I should have known. Uh. You guys should watch that documentary. It's going to be the best 14 hours of your life. It's a fantastic documentary. It's wonderful. But if you had seen it, then this illustration wouldn't fall flat, but I'll try to, I'll try to share, help you understand what I'm getting at. One of the stars of that documentary is this wonderful southern literary historian named Shelby Foote. And Shelby Foote is amazing in this documentary. They highlight him more than anybody else because he has this wonderful southern drawl and this ability to tell stories that you realize there must not be anybody else in America that can do it quite like him. And so you watch this documentary and you can't help yourself. You get on Amazon and you're looking up Shelby Foote. You're trying to figure out who Shelby Foote is. And you find out that Shelby Foote in the 70s wrote this massive three-volume work on the Civil War. It's like 3,000 pages. And so you say to yourself, um, you know, that's ridiculous. I've already, I spent 14 hours listening to Ken Burns. I'm not, 3,000 pages is too much. But then you might find that he wrote another book. And this other book is actually the more famous book. And it's a, what we call, you guys know what I mean when I say historical fiction? It's a piece of historical fiction called Shiloh. And that book, it's historical fiction because it it doesn't have enough accuracy in it to be called like strictly history, but it's also not imaginative enough to be called a novel. So you're going to bump into Robert E. Lee, you're going to bump into U.S. Grant, you're going to bump into these guys in Shiloh, but then you're also going to bump into a guy named Corporal Blake, and you're not going to find Corporal Blake in the encyclopedia. That's something that Shelby Foote made up. But he did it for a very specific purpose. And he puts that purpose, he puts the the purpose for his novel on page 12 of the book Shiloh. And he puts it in the mouth of this man, Corporal Blake. And Corporal Blake is speaking to the men in his squadron after the battle of Shiloh is over. And he says this to them. He's talking about books about war in general and he says books about war were written to be read by god almighty because nobody else but god ever saw it that way a book about war to be read by men ought to tell what each of the 12 of us saw in our own little corner then it would be the way it was not to god but to us now here's why i like that quote and here's why I think that quote is just totally relevant for 1 Samuel. The irony is, Shelby Foote wrote Shiloh in the exact same way that God wrote 1 Samuel. Because you don't have a bird's eye view of these wars breaking out in 1 Samuel. You're not looking down on the events of 1 Samuel like you would look down on the events of a chessboard from the clouds. You don't see the ark bopping around different Philistine territories and Israelite territories. You got blood and guts and swords and dead bodies and all kinds of stuff all over the place. This is a book to be read by men because God deeply wants men to see the way He interacts in the material world, where the real things are. Not where this bird's eye view, kind of like an RPG. You guys know what I'm talking about, like a computer game. Those computer games where you're just looking from above. That's not what God's doing. He's doing something really different. So we have to watch the ark make its way through these territories and see the havoc that it wreaks on both Jew and Gentile both. And that makes us have to ask, I think, some really difficult and frustrating and maybe even sad questions. It makes us reckon with a God who can be scary and troublesome and who we only want to hear out of His mouth. Why do you do these things? And we don't really always hear it in 1 Samuel. Now, I'm going to read chapter 6, and it's going to be wily. It's all over the place. But I want to do something really simple with this passage, just for the sermon. And just ask two maybe obvious questions. Here's the first question. What what must we do to escape the danger of God's holiness? And that's just another way of saying, how do we escape God's wrath? But the second question is the other question, and that's, how do we, after that's happened, after we've escaped the danger of this angry God, how do we remain close to Him? How do we remain in His presence? You guys see where I'm, You guys will hear where I'm getting this. And it's from verse 20, where the Israelites say in chapter 6, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And so this morning, we got to reckon with the fact that God's holiness in 1 Samuel 6, it's not cuddly, you know what I mean? It can be sort of troublesome. So will you listen as I read? This is a long passage. I'm actually going to read um, all the way uh, through the first two verses of chapter 7. But this is God's word. The ark, of the, the ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. They said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why, this, why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the gift, guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke. And yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home, away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, And put in a box at its side the figures of gold which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of the tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Bethshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed, sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord." And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron, and the golden mice according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone... Beside which they set down the ark of the Lord as a witness to the to this day in the field of Joshua, of Bethshemesh, and he struck some of the men of Bethshemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck seventy men of them, and the people mounted because the Lord mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men the men of Bethshemesh said, "Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us?" So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-jearim saying the Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord come now come down and take it up to you and the men of Kiriath-jearim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord from that day the ark was lodged at Kiriath-jearim a long time past, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Let's pray together. And now, O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, wow, the Philistines are stuck with this ark. We heard last week how this all came to be. The Israelites and the Philistines had a battle with each other and the Israelites wantonly brought the ark to the battle and the Philistines got it. They captured it and they took it back with them. And this thing becomes an utter disaster for the Philistines They're growing tumors everywhere. They're infested with mice. And they realize pretty quickly that their best guess is that the Lord is the one that's doing this. Now, we didn't read this. But what happens in chapter 5, we skip chapter 5 and I'll come back to this. This amazing thing happens where the Philistines take the Ark of the Covenant and they think, well, what do you do with an Ark of a Covenant when you're a pagan people? You put it in your own temple, right? Right and you set it next to your idol god, Dagon, which is their god. And so they put the Ark of the Covenant next to Dagon, and they set it there kind of as like a palace, to act as a sort of palace slave for Dagon. But they go to bed one night and wake up the next morning, and Dagon's fallen down in worship before the Ark of the Covenant. And so the Philistines say, pick it back up, pick it up, put it up, stand the thing up, get it right, you know, what's going on here? They go to bed that night, and the Dagon's on his face again, but this time his head has been cut off, and his hands have been cut off, and while Dagon's lost his hands, the hands of the Lord become heavy on the Philistines. And out come the mice, and out come the tumors, and we got a real situation on our hands. And so the Philistines say, what do we do? And so they, they call their own priests and they call their own diviners and they say, what shall we do with the Ark of the Lord? Well, that's a fascinating question to ask because it reveals both, I think, a really profound insight but also a really deep misunderstanding. The insight is that they understand that they bear some sort of guilt, right? Right? There's some sort of guilt going on here and God, the God of Israel is angry at them about something and even the Philistines get that. Listen to how the ESV puts it. I think it's in verse 3. If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Now that's almost good biblical theology. It almost is, because there's scores of Christian theologians, supposedly Christian theologians, that wouldn't even acknowledge that. That God has something to be angry with humanity about, and that He demands that His anger be appeased. But there's still some deep ignorance, too. Rather than call their own priests and their own diviners, they should have contacted an Israelite priest, a good Israelite priest, which there may not have been very many in Israel in these days, but that's what they needed to do. And if they would have done that, that Israelite priest, if he was doing right, would have led them to Leviticus 5 verse 15 and would have said to them, what you need to do, bring to the Lord as his compensation a ram without blemish out of the flock. That's what the Israelite priest would have said. Now, of course, a little bit later, Isaiah would have taken it a step further and told them to look forward in anticipation to the final ram without blemish. You guys remember Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And of course, John the Baptist, we would hear way later, he takes it even a step further and points to Jesus, the carpenter's son of Nazareth, and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So the Philistines knew that they needed to send a guilt offering. And they knew that it needed to be costly. I mean, they ruined this gold making. Images of tumors, which who even knows? What, how, I don't know what, what that would look like. I have no idea. It's a waste of gold and of mice. I mean, nobody, you're not going to put that on your mantle. Once the guilt offering was done, those things were worthless. But here they go. They knew that it needed to be costly. Let's, do, let's make this thing as costly as, they, as we possibly can. But, of course, they still tried in that moment to earn God's forgiveness on their own terms. And frankly, as costly as that gift of atonement was, the price was still much too low because we know that only God Himself can absorb His own wrath. So we don't... This is is important, I think, every time we come together on Sunday mornings to remember. We don't devise our own ways of approaching God at all. We don't presume to make up some idea about how we can get right with a God That's angry at us. And that's really primarily good news. But it's also deeply troublesome news for many of us. I know it feels troublesome for me. It's definitely troublesome, like David said this morning, it's troublesome for our nation. It's troublesome for our culture. When we resemble the Philistines more than we resemble what the Israelites should have looked like by trying to impress each other with technological advances, with growing wealth, but become flagrantly unwilling to confess sin and acknowledge our deep need for God's grace and the transforming power of His Spirit. God's holiness can't be presumed upon. He's real and He's deeply opposed to sin, and sin can only be forgiven through the work of His Son, adopted by faith. But after we ask that question, after we ask and answer the question, how can God's wrath be appeased, The thing that I'm just so curious about is what does it look like to still stay around this troublesome holiness? What does it look like to develop a life with this kind of God? How do we remain in the presence of this dangerous holiness? And here's the thing I just could not shake when I thought about this passage. When you think about this entry back into Israelite-occupied, territory, it sort of starts to look like a triumphant entry, right? It's sort of reminiscent of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, but it's not the kind of entry into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday that you want to stage in a church service. You don't have kids waving branches, yelling Hosanna. It starts to look like the set of the wire or Gettysburg or something. It's just bodies everywhere. And so this isn't the kind of thing that we would feel comfortable reenacting. This is the return of Israel's God, but this looks more like the Jesus of Revelation with a sword for a tongue, with hair as white as snow, with feet of burnished bronze, and a voice who sounds like the roar of many waters. So you see, we didn't didn't read it, and I explained it just a minute ago, but in chapter 5, When the Philistines take this ark and put it in front of their idol and god Dagon, the Lord, the God of Israel, he doesn't play that. He doesn't tolerate that sort of thing. And so when the Philistines come in the next next morning, far from the ark standing in the service of Dagon, the idol Dagon has fallen on its face in front of the ark. Early in the morning, the Philistines came in to the tomb of Yahweh, expecting him to be dead with a rock and stone holding him there, and that rock and stone was called Dagon. But that stone had been rolled away. Dagon's plastered face first in front of Yahweh. Yahweh isn't dead. He's risen. And while Dagon's hands, like we said, had been chopped off, the hands of the risen king of the entire world is about to be heavy on those who offended him. And so after these plagues, the Philistines have no choice but to send this great God away. Send him back to Israel. But here's where it gets even crazier, because Israel's not off the hook either. When I was, I woke up early this morning and I was reading this passage over again. And I came to verse 13 and I read it. I was thinking about my sermon, you know, and I read this. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. And I had the strangest thing happen to me. Y'all aren't going to believe this. It's just me and Jesse up, right? And I read this thing. And I started to smell something so weird. Y'all know what I started to smell? It was fish. And then I had this even crazier thing happen. I started to have a vision. Bear with me. And I started to see sails and nets and boats. And then all of a sudden, I started to feel something so funny around my legs. And I looked down and, and if it wasn't, the Sea of Galilee, you know, kind of rippling past my ankles and its waves hitting my calves. And then all of a sudden I started to hear something, right? And it was these sandal shod feet bumping down a dusty road in Palestine. And I heard a voice saying, Oh foolish ones, slow of heart to believe, do you not know all that was spoken to the prophets?' And then I had this crazy taste in my mouth. Gluten and tannins. And I knew immediately what those gluten and tannins were. It was the bread and blood of a new covenant. And I knew right where that stuff came from. It came right from the marketplace of Ephesus. Because when I read verse 13 of of 1 Samuel chapter 6, you know all I hear? I hear Peter and John and Thomas and all of them see the suffering that happened on Calvary, and they say, it was good while it lasted. We ought to just go fishing again. I guess there's nothing left to do. And seven months after the ark has been gone from the land of Israel, what do the people of Israel do? Better get back to harvesting wheat. That was nice to have that ark of the covenant while it lasted, but we better get back to making food. Far be it from us to wait for the one that drops bread from heaven and spews water from a rock. Don't wait for him. Let's just get back to business, back to making money and making food. But then the ark shows up and they're happy then, aren't they? They rejoice in verse 13. Boy, it's good to see this ark back. It's convenient then for them to enjoy that. And boy, they get curious. They want to look inside the ark after it shows back up into their place of safety and security, then they want to see that ark. Where were they for the last seven months? Where were they? They weren't busting down the temple of Dagon to get their ark back. They weren't redeeming their culture. They weren't willing to follow a God that had delivered them every time up until that point. And because they failed to show God His due reverence, 70 of them ended up dead. And so, again, we got to ask that question with the men of Beth Shemesh who is able to stand before this holy God? And I don't think we can let that question pass us by either. It's not pagan Philistines asking that question. These are Israelites, and they got dead brothers and sisters all around them. They got to be utterly bewildered and perplexed by the providence of God. Who's able to stand before this holy God? Certainly not Dagon, and certainly not Philistines, and certainly not Israelites that act no better than Philistines. This is a God that won't stay dead, and will by no means acquit the unrepentant guilty. And so the men of Beshemesh, instead of repenting for looking into the ark, they simply try to push the ark away. Just like the men after Jesus casts the demons out of the gathering demoniac and sends those demons flying into the swine and those swine go up off the cliff, they say, go away from us, this is just too much holiness, it's too much authority, it scares us, we don't know what to do with it. But of course that's not the way to deal with the great and troublesome and dangerous holiness of God. You can't ward it off. And so we come back to this theme this morning in application that we always come to. Right? And that's this theme of Christian confession. We always talk about that in this church. Maybe I don't deny the lordship of Jesus in my heart when he shows me my sin. When I see things in my own life that I know ought not be there, I probably, I might not deny Jesus' authority, but I do very often try to slyly justify and vindicate those things and twist them in such a way that they don't look as heinous as they really are. I try to ward it away. I try to ward that holiness away and that won't do. Over and over again in the Bible, no matter how perplexing God becomes, His ways are not our ways and our thoughts are not His thoughts. It would have never dawned on us for the creator of the universe to Himself condescend and allow himself to be betrayed into the hands of the Philistines. None of us would have thought to have done that. We would have never thought to let our God, our Savior Jesus, be mocked and thrown on a hill called Golgotha and made the palace slave of foreign powers. It wouldn't have, have dawned on us at all for him to subject himself to that in order that he might put the final enemy under his feet, which is death. But here's the shocking thing about all of this. That's the God you want. You want the God that's perplexing. You want the God that's bewildering. You want the God that you don't know what's coming next because it's that God that can break into history and break into this world and redeem you from sin and save you. You don't want a hand-wringing God that you know exactly where providence and history are going. You don't want that at all. It's Him that can break the sinful patterns of our own personal lives and break the sinful patterns of this world and rescue us. And it's Him that upholds each of us that are righteous in Christ. And it's Jesus that presses us towards confession and authenticity and forgives us every time. That's a perplexing and a bewildering God, but that's the God you want because that's the God that will finally bequeath to you a whole new creation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and love towards us and your Son. And honestly, we thank you that we don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're doing. If we did, you could not be God. We would be God. For us to be perplexed by you puts us in the lineage of thousands that come before us. And so will you give us the patience and endurance it takes to wait to see what you're doing, and to finally redeem us. In your name we pray. Amen.